This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by BrewGuru, a free smartphone app made by our friends at the American Homebrewers Association. BrewGuru helps beer lovers save money on beer and beer brewing supplies, and it serves up exclusive content from Zymergy Magazine and homebrewersassociation.org. BrewGuru is free for Android, iPhone, and iPad. Check it out. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why Yeast. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Happy Holidays, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the recently released Homebrew All-Stars. I don't know. One of these days, I think I'm going to have to start saying the word recently. But our new book, <laughs> Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best homebrewers and get you to bring you, bring you their tips and tricks. Uh, together, Denny and I, we have about 40 years of experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check it out. Yeah, well, and we've got a busy show this week here in episode 29. As we're getting ready to head into the holidays, we're going to launch an experiment. We're going to talk a little bit of feedback, go through some uh, fun things that we found online. Uh, and we're also going to go talk to a really great brewer up in Portland. That's right, we're still in Portland. Uh, we're going to talk to Van Havig of Gigantic Brewing Company, as well as cover our usual Q&A, our tips and tricks, and something other than beer. Yeah, and you definitely want to stick around for that interview with Van, because it'll be the only beer interview you've ever heard that uh, also covers the plague. Uh, <coughs> I, t- 
<laughs> yeah, I think Drew's got it. Now. What really amazed me was not only that Van wanted to talk about the plague, but that you could carry on a conversation with him about it. Well, hey, what do you want? I'm a nerd. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, after all of that, we'll hit you with another round of Q&A in Ask Denny and Drew, and then we'll close out the show with our quick tip of the week. And we want to remind you that there are a lot of ways you can help support the podcast by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. First of all, we've got a store there where you can buy t-shirts and autographed books. And we know that you're just dying to have a t-shirt and an autographed book, right? Uh, you can also click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to Brew Your Own Magazine or the American Homebrewers Association link to join the AHA and get a subscription to Zymergy Magazine and all the other benefits of an AHA membership. When you do either of those, a little bit of that money comes back to the podcast to help us support uh, what we do. The other thing you can do is click on the Patreon link and you can donate whatever amount you feel like to our charity drive. Uh, the charity for the second half of this year is the Children's Tumor Foundation, which supports research into the causes and treatment of pediatric neurofibromatosis. Yeah, you know, and hey, we only have one month left in this drive. Uh, we're saved up some good money to, to donate to the cause. And, you know, you have to reward Denny for now being able to say neurofibromatosis. Yeah, no kidding. So get out there at patreon.com slash experimental brewing, uh, patreon.com link on our website. And uh, hey, donate a buck. Uh, yeah, and we're going to be getting ready to uh, choose a new uh, charity for the after the first of the year. So if you have any ideas for worthwhile charities that uh, you and our listeners would like to support, shoot us an email at uh, podcast at experimentalbrew.com and give us your suggestions. Indeed. So uh, I hear we have listener letters, huh? What's up? Well, yeah, we do. So I'm going to read off a couple of emails, and then we need to address one thing real quick. Uh, we had some people reach out to uh, to us in concern about the review that we did for Jaded Chillers a couple episodes back. And, you know, mostly about, uh, well, did Jaded provide us the chillers for free, et cetera, et cetera. And I could have sworn we said it in the segment, but I'm totally willing to admit that we may have uh, missed it. But yes, uh, for the Jaded segment... They did indeed provide us uh, with the chillers that we tested. Uh, it was a nice gift, uh, but we would like to remind everybody that uh, we will always be clear about that. Uh, not everything that we talk about on the show is something that we've been gifted, but when we are talking about something that has been gifted, we'll make sure to tell you that we that it has been. And also at the same time, remember our little pledge that we made all the way back at the beginning of the show when we started this thing and talking about sponsors was we are only going to talk about things that we actually really appreciate and enjoy. So, uh, yep. Jaded gave us the chillers. We still think they rock. They're still pretty damn awesome. And if I had to spend my own money on them, I totally would. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, we just want to assure you any way we possibly can that, uh, we will tell you the truth about this stuff. Uh, if people gave us stuff and it absolutely sucked, we would tell you that because that's what we do. Uh, uh, fortunately, <laughs> these chillers are about as far from absolutely sucking as you can possibly get. So we have the uh, wonderful job of telling you how great they are. Uh, but just believe us that we will always tell you the truth. Yeah. And, you know, trust us, we're honest people, you know, and you know who else is honest? 
Our friends at ZX Ventures, who own Northern Brewer and Midwest Supplies. Wait, hold on. No. No, no. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I'm not going there, man. <laughs> All right. Uh, we also got a couple of emails uh, from, uh, one of them was from Lars Orberg from Sweden, which is awesome. Uh, he says, hi, Denny and Drew. Uh, just discovered your podcast after listening to the, uh, the Beersmith podcast interview that I, uh, I did a couple weeks back. And I yeah, they didn't it. want me. Well, yeah, they they want the prettier people because it's on video. That's right. Uh, I'm so glad. Uh, I am so glad to have found a podcast that captures what I enjoy about the hobby and is not afraid of being a bit nerdy. Because let's face it, homebrewing is nerdy. You're absolutely right, Lars. Uh, I especially enjoy hearing about the experiments. I recently brewed a double using grains that were pre-crushed about 30 days prior to brew day. It is a recipe I have brewed before, so it is going to be interesting to see if I will notice any difference. Hope to hear more about this kind of experiments in the future. Anyway, just wanted to say, keep up the good work, Lars. Yeah, uh, Lars, you're not the only person to report back to us that you're doing uh, brews with grain that have been crushed a little bit earlier and in advance. Uh, but yeah, I really want to hear uh, how your beer comes out because more and more, it seems, if you store things reasonably, you have a fair window of opportunity to be able to brew without having a negative impact on your brew day. What do you think today? Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's been proven to me over and over again through my own laziness after I crush the grain and can't get around to brewing. Uh, there are people out there who will tell you that theoretically those grains are going to start oxidizing after they're crushed and you won't be making good beer. And uh, to me, that is a difference between theory and reality. So, yeah, Well, and I, I also said. suspect it's a difference between... Uh, the practical application of trying to brew a Pilsner with pre-crushed grain versus brewing, you know, your sort of typical homebrew slash craft beer. We have a lot of room to hide stuff in. Well, I once brewed a Pilsner with grain that had been crushed for five months and it tasted just like the Pilsner that was brewed with grains that I just crushed. So there, well, you, there go. you go. There's a single data point. There you go. All right. And then our uh, other piece of feedback comes from uh, uh, Diana de Morena. Uh, who actually dropped a question, I think, in the all Q&A episode last time we did Yeah, one. I think so. Uh, said, I, I messed up his name. Yeah, well, we'll see if I, if I did, too. Uh, all right. Uh, hey, just wanted to let you know that I got a sack of Red X after hearing about it in the podcast. Awesome. And I plan to brew in 1060 single malt, lots of hops, beer with it. I'll send some pictures for you to check the color. Uh, cool. Yeah, I, I think Red X and Sacra 50 are both uh, some interesting new malts for people to play with in terms of getting that red without a roast. Yeah, right. All right, and he says, Also, I brewed uh, Drew's Pumpkin Saison, but with tons more pumpkin in the mash, which ended up like you can see. Uh, it gives a link, and we'll include it in the description, uh, and also in the boil. I opened fermented it, and it went down to 10.07 in just 12 days, fermenting nonstop. Woo! Wow. Uh, yeah. It's a great beer, and the pumpkin flavor is obvious if you've tried pumpkin, not so much if you expect a spicy bomb. So I love hearing people continuing on with the Saison experiment. I also love seeing people do stupid things with my pumpkin uh, recipe. <laughs> but it's yeah, well, awesome I, to, to see. And, and I think it's great that it's a, a beer that has lots of pumpkin flavor, but without the pumpkin spices. Well, and that, and that was the whole point behind that Saison, right? was... Uh, I don't like the fact that most pumpkin beer is really just pumpkin pie spice beer. And so the Saison yeast gives me that chance to get the, the spice characters without you know having to resort to tinctures or anything else. That's just a little more playful, I think. Yeah, right, right. 
Okay, so we've uh, taken care of that. Uh, I guess it's probably about time to go have something to drink over in the pub, huh? Okay. <laughs> okay, if I'm going to force him. We're going to wander over to the pub, and we'll be right back. Do you want to make the move to stainless steel, but you don't want to drop a grand or more? Chapman Brewing Equipment provides high-quality stainless steel mash tuns, kettles, and fermenters at an affordable price. Larry Medeiros, owner and operator of Bridgeview Beer and Wine Supply in Oregon, says, These are not only the best brewing pots made, they're also the best prices and will work on induction stoves as well. Ask for Chapman Brewing Equipment wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. have made our way to the Experimental Brewing Pub here at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in your town, USA. And we're sitting here having a couple drinks. What are you drinking today, Drew? Well, before we get to that, I, I think we should address an issue at hand. At some point in time, I yes. think we need to take the Experimental Brewing Pub on the road and not just have it in your town, USA. I mean, what about <laughs> you, your, your town, uh, Sweden? Your oh, okay. Town, well, yeah. That's true. Right, come we on. could do that. Okay, Jeez. okay. All right. Well, ne- <laughs> next next time I'll make sure that we have tickets bought so we can hop a plane for the pub. How's that? There we go. I like it. All right. Uh, okay. So this week I'm drinking my Milady de Winter Saison, uh, which is the beer I brewed a couple months back to test the candy syrup deep 240. And you know what? It's everything I'd want. It's rich. It's warm. It's dry. And it's got all those wonderful spicy Saison characteristics. Oh, man. That sounds good. I... Uh Assuming I can uh, make time for it, I have grain crushed to brew a Belgian dark strong ale this weekend using that D240. So uh, hopefully I can get to it because I I really want to play with that stuff some more. But for right now, I'm having a cider. Right here in Eugene, we have a wonderful cidery called Wildcraft Cider Works. Uh, They do a variety of, I mean, just unbelievably creative and delicious ciders. Uh, and the one that I'm having today is what they call Community Drive, where people all over the area bring in their spare apples. They make a cider out of it and uh, do a large charity donation from the proceeds from the cider. And uh, not only is it a great cause, it's a delicious cider, too. So, you know, uh, should you have an opportunity, uh, I don't know how wide the distribution is, but if you see Wildcraft Cider, grab it. You'll enjoy it. There you go. Hey, so I know a couple of weeks back I was in Fargo on the road for uh, talking at a competition, and I think it's only fair that our listeners know that you're doing the same thing too. Yeah, but not in Fargo. Uh, I'm, uh, oh, on uh, December 9th through 11th, I am going to be in St. Louis with the St. Louis Brews Club for their Happy Holiday Homebrew Competition and Banquet. I'm going to be speaking at the banquet. Uh, I'm going to be hanging around the competition. Hopefully, uh, I won't screw anything up. Who knows? Maybe they'll even 
be able to coerce me into doing a little judging. But I'm really looking forward to being in St. Louis and uh, meeting the guys there and talking to them and checking out the homebrew scene. So uh, if, if you're in the area, if you're in the club, hope to see you there. Come on by and say hello. Well, I was going to say, it's always a good encouragement. Uh, come out and judge, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, if you are a judge, I'm sure they can use the help. Uh, also, I will have books with me, so if you'd like to pick up an autographed book, you can do it there also. Woohoo. Woohoo. All right, well, well hey, so let's uh, let's talk some fun things uh, while we're here, other than sure. flying around the country. Uh, Lou, our good friend Lou, who we had on the show a few episodes back uh, talking about session beers, uh, just dropped an article uh, with thefullpint.com, and it's one of Lou's wonderful... Uh, well, wonderful little rants. You want to walk, a, yeah. walk us through it? You know, uh, Lou, Lou Bryson is a great guy and uh, has many, many of the same peeves and questions about beer culture that, uh, that I do. And uh, his latest article, which we'll post a link to, it's on thefullpint.com, is about beer glasses and... Uh, you guys all know the story about, you know, there's a different glass for every kind of Belgian beer and different kind of glasses will make beer taste different. And Lou kind of says, BS. <laughs> and I have to, I have to kind of go along with that. Um, his, his uh, criteria for a beer glass is that it's uh, clean and that it holds beer and i think that those are probably the two main qualities that we're looking for in a beer glass um i know that there have been like supposedly tests done where you serve beer out of different kind of glasses and decide if one makes the beer taste better or different than the others and to me those are just ripe for confirmation bias because you can obviously tell that these glasses are all different so, it, you know, it's one of those things that I really kind of wonder what the deal is uh, with, with beer glasses. And uh, to me, I have to say, I don't think that they make as much difference as a lot of people say that they do. Well, I mean, that's the whole thing about, like, is Redill just a giant money-sucking conspiracy? Uh, the big glass manufacturer, the, them and what, Spiegelgrau, I think, is one of the other ones. Uh, of course, I yeah, butchered right. the name. But, uh, yeah, you'll see people talk about, oh, well, you know, this sort of uh, shape enhances the nose, this sort of shape uh, enhances where the beer hits on the palate. You see the same talk about wine glasses, obviously. And I think I think at some point in time this runs into the same sort of ground that you see with people talking about high-end audio equipment. You know, right. I mean, there's a certain point that, yes, these things do make a difference. But then you have some of these things where it's like, no, the wooden knobs that you're putting on the bottom of your amplifier to isolate it from electrostatic vibrations of the universe and background radiation aren't actually making a difference in your audio quality. And yeah, I fully suspect there's some of that at play here. But at the same time, here's the other problem. Taste is perception, right? Mm -hmm. So if I get a fancy, fancy glass and that tweaks my perception to be a better experience is that a lie is that the truth 
is it, I mean, it's totally subjective, but I mean, it is. And, and you know, and I, I just uh, read about some study. And I can't remember what what was happening, but there was a clinical trial about. Uh, I think maybe it was like an Alzheimer's drug, and the the uh, half of them got the drug, whatever it was. The other half got sugar pills, mm-hmm. and more of the people who got the sugar pills reported relief from the symptoms than uh, the ones who actually got the drug itself. Yeah. So uh, you know. There's a, there's a lot to be said for, you know, fooling yourself and how it works. We've we've shown that in a lot of the seminars that we do. You know, where mm-hmm. like like the one where the people did the brain scan as they as they were tasting wines and people f- and then found that there were actual physical changes in your brain that yep. made you enjoy the wine more. Yep. So. If you know, it's like I I kind of like the Sam Adams glasses to drink out of. But you know why I really like them? They feel good in my hand. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's <laughs> you know? that. But that's part of the perceptual experience. Uh, my my one problem with a lot of the a lot of the stuff that I see with people like Lou here talking about. Oh well, you know this is a, a bunch of poppycock. Is there is something to be said for you know the uh, impact on perception, whether or not it's an actual physical manifestation just the fact that the experience is different and the fact that that actually influences how you experience the beer you know i mean some people i know think that that for some reason that's a it's a con game or ripoff or you know you're being lied to or cheated and it's like maybe but no because i think it's impacting your experience but at the same time i will agree the most important part about a glass is that it's clean and it keeps the beer from spilling on my shoes. That's right. Yeah, I, I agree. Beyond that, if uh, you have a favorite beer glass that makes you feel better or you think the beer tastes better out of, go for it. You know, it, well, uh, it may all be in your head, but on the other hand, what isn't? Well, I mean, look, uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I have a couple of favorite beer glasses. You know, I have, for whatever reason, I have a trappist glass from all of the original trappist breweries i don't have the new ones yet because i haven't gotten them yet uh but yeah and i like to drink my trappist beers out of those and i have got you know a nice goblet that i use for other things and i've got my english pint glass and i've got a saison glass and i'm a total freak i guess i i I think i think it's just like we're saying though that goes back more to your subjective perceptions you know that mm-hmm. i mean that that belgian beer glass you relate to a particular experience and so that enhances the beer drinking when you use that glass yep subjectivity is a is a pain in the butt and mm-hmm. in this case taste is subjective but i bet you if we ask our listeners out there i bet you almost every single one of them has a favorite beer glass. Yeah, send us a picture of your favorite beer glass. That would be really cool with your favorite beer in it. Yeah, tag us on Facebook, uh, send it to us at Podcast Experimental Brew, send it to us on Twitter. I don't care, get it to us somehow, but I damn well guarantee you a good number of you out there have a favorite glass. Yeah, so let's let's see those favorite glasses. Right. And uh, while we're asking you to do something, we have something else we want you to do. We want to know what your brew year's resolutions are. Uh, email them or record a voice memo on your phone. Uh, send it to us. Drop it on Facebook. Uh, let us know what you're going to be doing this year when it comes to brewing or even when it doesn't come to brewing. What kinds of things have you determined that you're going to turn around this coming year? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, last year we dropped our pants and told you what we were going to do. 
we've been mostly successful at them. So we want yeah, to get you guys on the spot now. So what are you going right. to do? Yeah, yeah. I have not started practicing my ukulele more, as anyone who's heard me play can tell you. But we do now have a chicken coop out there, and we are getting like four eggs a day out of it. That was a good resolution. <laughs> so yeah, get us uh, get us your resolutions at podcast at Experimental Brew. And like literally, if you want to get your voice on this show, all you have to do is take your phone, whether or not it's iPhone or Android or something, and they all have the ability to record a voice memo. And if you record that voice memo, you can download it, and then you can email it to us. And uh, assuming that it's suitable for air, uh, we may just use it. Right, and try and keep them under a minute, please. So, Okay, man, let's, uh, let's suck down these drinks, and we'll uh, wander over to the library, huh? Excuse me. Milady is a lady, and she does not get sucked down. Okay. She gets well, sipped. All right. You finish sipping. I'll suck down the cider and meet you there. All right. We'll be right back. Right, we have come over here to the library, and we've uh, plopped down in these nice, comfy chairs, and we are going to uh, talk about some reading material that uh, Drew ran across. Your turn. Yeah. All right. Well, the f- first one I think we should talk about is who do we blame for beer styles? And <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting way to put it. Well, yeah. It, you think about it, when you go back and you look in the late seventies at any of like the homebrew stuff that I have access to for the Falcons beer styles back in those days were, uh, ale light, ale, dark, lager, light, lager, dark, uh, and, uh, and other. stout. Yeah. And right. stout. Yeah. And, yeah. but as we've now seen, you go and you look at the 2015 BJCP guidelines, you go look at the GABF guidelines, you go look at anybody else's guidelines and there are hundreds upon hundreds of styles now. And and the folks over at Beer Syndicate, uh, particularly uh, Daniel Leonard, uh, wrote up an article a couple of weeks back, uh, pretty much pointing the whole beer style notion over to Michael Jackson and uh, talking about his seminal work at the World Guide to Beer, which was published in 1977, and how a lot of what we think of today as beer styles really comes out of that work. And what it really struck home with me is it reminded me of my first trip over to Belgium and going and hanging out in uh, various breweries like Phantom and sitting there and interacting with locals who were coming in. And we're sitting there thinking, oh, the, you know, this is such a wonderful Saison. And, and oh, we had some triples over here and this, that, and the other. And the locals were coming in and what they were ordering was Blonde, Brune, and uh, Ambrie, right? Amber. They, they didn't have the same notion of styles tied into their brains the way that we do in this sort of very sort of, English Germanic habit of scientifically cataloging everything. Uh, and so I do think it's interesting that I do think you can put a, a good portion of blame slash credit on Michael Jackson for the beer styles. And I think it's also a really awesome article to go dig in. And I think more people need to remember that Michael Jackson is really 
a good portion of the reason why people take beer as seriously as they do today. Yeah, and you know, in the immortal words of Adrian Monk, it's a blessing and a curse. You know, beer styles ha- have a lot of usefulness. You know, they can uh, give you an idea of what kind of beer you're going to be getting when you order something. Uh, in a competition, beer styles uh, really serve a great function in kind of trying to level the playing field because you have to have the beer judged against standard. On the other hand, uh, people who are too rigidly adherent to beer styles may be missing out on some uh, really interesting creative things that can happen. Uh, I'm pretty much a style-oriented guy, but on the other hand, I don't mind putting mushrooms in a beer if I think it's going to be good. So, you know, just just remember that beer styles can be a good thing when they're uh, used in the way they're intended. Uh, but don't don't let them limit you necessarily. I, you know, and it all basically comes back to the what we always say, which is brew what you want to brew. You know, it's your beer. Yeah, and don't don't let styles be uh, too procrustean uh, on yeah. your philosophy. Yeah, I mean, use them maybe as as a takeoff point for other things. You know, uh, make an make an alt beer, but uh, put American hops in it or something like that. So, no, that's never been done, not at all, not here. <laughs> yeah, ever. Yeah, right. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, tell me about the Scratch Brewers Almanac. Yeah, well, it's uh, the, it's actually the Home Brewers Almanac uh, from the folks at Scratch Brewing Company, and uh, I think it's Ava, Illinois, or Ava, Illinois, uh, down in Southern Illinois, anyway. And it's a really, really cool book, and I just discovered it, and I'm going to talk about it real quick. But you guys out there, if you have any sort of uh, sort of plant based uh, crazy pants brewing ideas. You really ought to pick this up because it's essentially a year-long guide to finding different items that you can use in your beer, either from the garden or from the woods or, you know, wherever. So just like Denny and his mushrooms uh, or my idea of saisons with uh, uh, farmhouse ideas uh, from your farm, it's the same sort of thing. And these guys are really, really cool. Uh, There's, I think, 30 different plants in there, a whole bunch of recipes. And it's just, it's one of those books where you pick it up. It's well-designed, but it's also really inspirational. Yeah, so you can look through, and they, and they talk about things like how to use various barks and leaves and uh, sap, along with things that you'd expect like uh, ginger and dandelion uh, and lavender. And uh, hey, Denny, they even have a recipe in there for chanterelles. Hey, hey, how about that? Uh, somebody else wisen up. Yeah, so I just a, it's a real quick recommendation. The Homebrewers Almanac uh, from uh, Scratch Brewing Company. And I would love to actually go and visit these guys and uh, and have some of the beer because they look like they're right up my alley. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, man, it sounds like Drew beer. Nothing wrong with Drew beer. Drew beer is good beer. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I didn't say there was anything wrong with it, did I? <laughs> no, but I'm defensive. Yeah, right. Well, and, and I guess you need to be about some of those things. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me just say, Fluffernutter. Fluffernutter is fine. You're you're a jackass for refusing it. Uh, no, it's just just my taste. What can I say? <laughs> Time to wander over to the lab and talk experiments now, huh? Indeed. Okay, we're gonna head over there. We'll be right back.
Okay, we've wandered over to the lab. It's time to talk about some of the experiments we're doing. And I'll just uh, start off here real quick by saying that yesterday I dropped off 22 beers from our IBU experiment at Oregon Brew Lab for uh, Dana Garvis, the woman who runs the lab, to analyze. And uh, coming up here probably within the next month, We'll have the results from all of that, and uh, we'll start maybe looking at when is an IBU not an IBU. Yeah, I just like the fact it's actual science. And I know we're going to have an interview with Dana coming up uh, to discuss the results and also right. to discuss the, the technique uh, that, that she's using to measure it so that everybody can understand exactly what actual science looks like. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing that's really cool is that Dana is so into this. When I was talking to her, she suggested a couple other really great experiments that uh, that we're going to put together uh, to really test out some theories that we've been uh, wondering about recently. But I'm not going to get too far off track with all that right now, because you need to talk about our next experiment coming up. Yeah. So uh, we have our Igor's uh, tasked to start on a new experiment. This one is uh, talking about uh, keg purging and different techniques for keg purging. You'll remember a couple episodes back, we talked about my uh, keg purge technique, which is uh, basically I fill my kegs up with star sand or sandy clean and then drive all the, the liquid out with CO2 so I completely displace uh, all the oxygen, uh, as opposed to the usual method that other people will do, which is the sort of purge cycle thing. You know, it's like fill it up with CO2, pop the PRV, fill it up with CO2 again and do that like seven times. And we've had some feedback about that. And we'll actually, uh, we have a question about it later in the show, but what we wanted to do was say, okay, well, look, can we, can we show, is there a distinct difference between these two styles of purging? And, you know, particularly because I claim that I can hold on to some uh, sessionable beers for much, much longer periods of time by keeping the beers both cold and in these uh, fully purged kegs. So we're going to have our Igors take a, a, a hoppy recipe. The recipe is uh, not, to, not determined just yet. We're going to have them uh, take a hoppy recipe because hops fade with signs of oxidation uh, much faster than anything else. And we're going to have them do a series of two experiments uh, and have them set it up so that they can do this uh, as quickly as possible. But basically, brew a hoppy beer. Set up uh, two to three kegs, depending upon which legs of the experiment they're doing. Purge one of the kegs with my full purge method. So fill it up with liquid, purge it out with CO2. Uh, do one keg with uh, the PRV release treatment where it's, you know, fill it up and release the pressure seven times to drive as much of O2 out as possible. And then the last one will be a keg that is completely unpurged. So all the oxygen in the world in the headspace that you can adore. And we'll have, we'll have them fill those kegs with the hoppy beer and package and hold on to for a month in the exact same conditions and then compare the the three different beers or two different beers depending upon which test they're doing and actually see can you detect a difference does i got a question yeah where did seven times come from i don't know it's the one that i always see people talk about and it's you know fill the keg up with co2 release it and do it seven times as if though it's some sort of uh uh Kabbalistic uh, <laughs> mantra, because <laughs> well, remember in in Kabbalistic systems and uh, numerological systems with Christian origins, uh, seven is a holy number. So yeah, 
<laughs> okay, well, I guess I've just learned something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we're going to have people uh, give this a test and see what can be seen. Uh, give us your feedback. If you want to get involved in the experiment, uh, I would totally say sign up because the whole idea here is, again, I think doing this full purge is a great protective mechanism for your beer. And particularly since everybody seems to be absolutely mind-bogglingly obsessed with hoppy beers, and hoppy beers seem to be affected by oxygen damage much, much faster, that you're going to want to do everything you can to protect your hop aroma. And so if the answer is, hey, you spend a little bit of extra money and fill your kegs up with a sanitizing solution and push it out, I can't see why you wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, you're going to have to sanitize the kegs anyway, right? Indeed. Okay. So, uh, well, so real quick, if you want to join uh, join in on the experiment, uh, please feel free to join the Igors. E- email us at igor at experimentalbrew.com. Uh, I will get you signed up. We will get you involved, and you will get to see what experiments are on tap. And even if you don't want to necessarily be an Igor, but you want to play along with us, you'll be able to find the write-up of this experiment on our website, experimentalbrew.com. And uh, feel free to join in and report your results as well, because I think there's something here. Yeah, well, I guess we'll find out, won't we? Indeed. Okay. Time to uh, head to the lounge where we're going to listen to an interview we did with Van Havig of Gigantic Brewing when we were in Portland a month or so ago. It uh, is not only loaded with great info, it is uh, definitely a real entertaining interview, and uh, you'll be able to learn all about Mixbot. He mixes. Mixbot mixes. That's right. Okay, we'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in our comfy chairs, our comfy robes, our comfy pipes, and our comfy beers. It's time to lounge. Lounging. And today on the lounge. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, we're now lounge lizards. But now today on the lounge, uh, we are are back in Portland, one of our favorite cities, and we are talking to Van Havig from Gigantic Brewing. And uh, Gigantic is, uh, this was our, I think, our third stop of the day. I think so. Yeah. uh, Our third stop of the day. And, you know, we were having a great time. We managed to actually stop outside and they had a nice little uh, poke truck outside. So we had some nice, uh, nice food. But really the highlight of the whole thing was to be able to see and talk with Van about uh, the brewery, his flavors and everything else. But uh, Denny, I think you you've got to tell people about van yeah i uh i first became aware of van and gigantic when i was at a a beer fest a barrel age beer fest and in amongst all the uh bourbon barrel age stouts and stuff like that there was a gin barrel aged ipa i love gin i love ipa this was one of those things that i had never even considered before but it's two great british it's two great british tastes that go great together yeah i agree man it's kind of like you got chocolate in my peanut butter you got gin in my beer so uh anyway the combination of the of the gin the wood from the barrel and the ipa was absolutely remarkable so I marked gigantic down in my head. 
when I was uh, up at YCH Hops for Hop and Brew School last summer, last fall, uh, Van was one of the speakers there, and we had a chance to meet and talk and discover that we hold a lot of the same brewing philosophies and general craziness. So when we were uh, up, up in Portland uh, touring breweries, uh, it was only natural that we uh, went by Gigantic to check out the beers and Van's operation. He uh, talked to us about the origin of the Gin Barrel IPA, how he came up with the concept for that. And he introduced us to Mixbot, which is uh, definitely a trip. This guy is an equipment freak as much as anything. So he has invented Mixbot, which he'll talk about. And uh, we'll put some pictures up on the website. So uh, get comfy, grab a beer if you're not driving, and uh, listen to the interview with Van Havig from Gigantic Brewing. Hey, this is Denny, and we are here at Gigantic Brewing in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Drew and Larry are with me still. I haven't managed to lose them yet. Yeah. <laughs> we are talking to Van Havig. Hey, Van. How are hey, you today, man? I'm good, Denny. How are you, man? Great, man. So what is your official title here? Uh, I am the master brewer. And Gigantic that is the Brewing truth. Company. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Master of none brewer. You know. So, so tell me a little bit about your background. How'd you get into brewing? Oh man, I was a uh, PhD candidate in economics at the University of Minnesota back in the early '90s, and uh, I started home brewing for uh, the Canadian reason. By which I mean, <laughs> I couldn't. It was cheap. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't afford the beer I wanted to drink, so I made, tried to start making it myself. And that actually worked out pretty good. Um, and then uh, I had a crisis of faith with, with, with economics, and so I dropped out, and uh, I took a job at a brewery. Wait, was your crisis of faith that you didn't believe that economics was actually a real thing, or you didn't want to do it? Uh, my crisis of faith was that I was interested in economics as a social science, not as a policy prescriptive tool. And when you start to look at economics as a social science, I believe, and I, despite all the crap that's come out in economics since I dropped out of school, I still firmly believe this, that <clears throat> economists can argue with me, I don't care, uh, that uh, economics, which at its heart is an enlightenment discipline and relies absolutely on uh, equilibrium in order to have uh, stable outcomes, regardless of what your modeling is. And I don't believe that all human behavior tends towards equilibrium. <laughs> So, so uh, there just kind of became sort of a fundamental crisis of faith for me in discipline, and I just I became less and less interested in it, and so right. I left. So you moved into the brewing world. Now, mm -hmm. how, did, how, how did we go from getting into the brewing world to being here at Gigantic? Oh man, so as quick as possible. So I, my <laughs> first my first job was Minnesota Brewing Company. It was a mm -hmm. you know really big brewery in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, union job. And uh, and uh, I only worked there for like four months, but I learned an awful lot. And then uh, the assistant brewer job at the Minneapolis Rock Bottom came up. This is all in 1995. This is a long time ago. And uh, so I took that job. And uh, I did well at Rock Bottom as an assistant. And then a year and a half later, uh, I got sent out to Maryland to build and open the Bethesda, Maryland Rock Bottom. 
And when I was out there, I became a regional brewer for the company, and I helped build a couple other breweries. And then I got, and then uh, I got transferred out to Portland because my friend Matt Sage had a heart attack. He's fine. He's still a friend of mine. Everything's cool. Uh, but he decided to get out of brewing. He was like, "This is bullshit. I'm done with this." <laughs> um, <clears throat> Needs something less physical. So I transferred out to Portland, and I was the head brewer at the Portland Rock Bottom for I don't know ten and a half years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Rock Bottom got purchased by an equity partnership group. Same one that owns Gordon Beers now, I think, right? Or is that that was a joint buy? Yeah, they yeah. essentially bought as one deal. They bought both Rock Bottom and Gordon Beers. And the thing about Rock Bottom and Gordon Beers, I don't think a lot of people know, is that they had had a very those two companies had had a very close relationship for a long time. Uh, back in the late '90s, there was actually joint ownership between those two companies. Um, anywho. So when that happened, um, I sort of realized that there's going to be a lot of, well, some very bad decisions started to be made, in my mm. opinion. So I talked publicly about that, and as a result, I got fired. Oops. And I'm fine with that. Um, <laughs> Own it. What's that? Own it. No, I, hey. Well, no, you, you are owning it. That's. I'm a havoc. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? Can't, can't deny my upbringing. Um, and, uh, so I was out of a job and I needed to work and Ben Love, my business partner, he had been, uh, looking at starting his own project. Um, I had actually been working on a project before that, that had fallen through in the space of one week, a project that I've been working on for about seven months fell apart. Uh, and, uh, the beginning of my the beginning of my two week termination started, so like my whole life was all. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so Ben talked to me. He's like, "Dude, we should do something together." And so Ben and I started working on a business plan in January, and um, we uh, had a lease in I don't know August or something like that of 2011, and uh, well, we started brewing in April 2014. How about that? Cool. Sorry, that's wrong. 2012. <laughs> Can't get the date. Yeah, <laughs> There's undoubtedly I'm a year involved. Wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who can remember anything anymore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, to summarize, graduate school dropout, union job, rock bottom for 16 and a half years, got fired, started gigantic. There you go. I could have just said that. Nothing to it. Man. I could have just said that. Yeah, right. no, I mean, that's yeah. just an easy line, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and no mixing in there and anywhere. Right. So, so one of the questions we always ask is, uh, not using the word balance, what's your brewing philosophy? Oh, huh. Um, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't need to use the word balance. I don't give a shit about balance. Um, I really don't. I think that's a kind of a bullshit word. Yeah. Balance yeah. is a word that you use to sort of say, oh, I made it taste good. Yeah, f*** yeah. Um, that's why we ask it. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can't edit that, by the way. I don't. Nope. Why would anyone edit me? Um, <laughs> God, that's came off really sh- <laughs> mm. Um I don't like the brewing philosophy. Well, I guess I do have a brewing philosophy. I don't know. Um, try to make beer that tastes good. Hon- uh, yeah, uh, honestly, honestly, like, um, I want beer to be, <laughs> I want beer to be soft and I want it to taste good. Soft. Yeah. I don't like beer that's like really bracing. Okay. You know, I don't like 
overly bitter beer, or if their beer is bitter, I want that bitterness to be soft. I hated that fucking late 90s. We put a bunch of Chinook in it. Isn't it amazing? And fucking bitterness crawling down the back of your throat. I don't like, think that stopped in the late 90s. I think I think that's only recently stopped in like about yeah. the past five years. Yeah, but, you know, I hated all that stuff. I like... Look. I like beer that I can actually drink. Mm-hmm. That's what I like. And what I think is drinkable is, oh, this tastes good. And I don't need beer to challenge my palate. I want to be like... I want to... Use another great economic term. I drink beer f***ing hedonically. Mmm, it makes me feel good, and I like it. Yeah. Well, we, we've talked about we've talked about hedonistic testing in the past on the mm-hmm. podcast, but it seems like it would be fair to say the summary is: I like beer that can go into the glass, that I can drink, and that I can have another and enjoy. Um, yeah, it. more Moorish. I, yes, I, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a sort of Moorish kind of guy. Um, Morish to me is a relevant thing, though, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, well, there are days I, when you just want to have a barley wine, but well, barley wine is exactly what I was going to bring up. I'm not really a barley wine drinker, but every now and then there'll be a barley wine that is so good or that you'll enjoy so much, and I never want more than like a couple ounces of barley mm-hmm. wine. But maybe I want another couple more ounces of barley wine, and an- maybe I want three or four times a couple ounces of barley. You could have a very Moorish barley wine. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be a pint. Doesn't mean Moorish. Right. Yeah. It means whatever you're. You know. Some, so. Something that, that draws you back to it. The, yeah. the flavors are make make you go. Damn, I, I need another one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or or even just it's just so pleasant. Right. You know. Just ah, oh, this feels good. So I'm I'm drinking this amazing gin barrel mm-hmm. IPA called Pipe Wrench. Why don't you tell people the the story behind this, the thinking that you had? Do you want the whole story? You want this immortalized on a podcast? Yeah, that's that's what we want. Yeah. As, as so, much as you're we, uh, willing to have legally actionable by having it in recorded form. Oh, yeah, that's not really a concern. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's fine. So, uh, people have been drinking Boilermakers in this country for a long time. And, uh, I don't know, it must have been about 10, 12 years ago, a friend of mine was like, we should have, like, an IPA Boilermaker, but bourbon and IPA is just gross. So he's like, we should put gin in there. We were like, oh God, let's go try this. And so you just, you know, you take like, you don't necessarily want to pipe uh, a pint of uh, IPA because pint of IPA and then a shot of gin is like really strong. Mm-hmm. So like a 12 ounce IPA and a shot of gin. And you try it and you're like, holy crap, it's awesome, right? All this sort of floral and piney notes of both kind of come screaming out. It's fantastic. So we would drink those, um, occasionally walk up to a bartender and be like, yeah, can I get so-and-so's IPA and can I get a shot of gin in there? And they all look at you like you're crazy. And you're like, dude, just put the straw in there and taste it. I know you're gonna. <laughs> and they all do, and they're like, whoa! And you're like, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, so when, uh, when uh, Ransom Spirits started making gin a few years ago and started making gin barrels available, uh, Ben picked up a few, and he's like, what do you want to do with these? I was like, I <laughs> I know exactly what we're going to do yeah. with f***ing IPA in these things. He was like, really? And I like took him out and I was like, here, gin, IPA, here, drink this. He was like, oh my god. And, and by the way, Ransom gin is really awesome. So It's a really lovely gin. Um, and it's interesting because it's an old Tom gin, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not a London Dry or, or, uh, or anything like that. Uh, so it's a lot fuller flavored 
um, almost sweet, rich. Mm -hmm. It's different than that sort of like thin, uh, uh, super aromatic. It's it's not uh, the London Dry. It's not yeah. the, the modern California. It's yeah, yeah, not yeah. the yeah. booze forward. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I and I like gin a lot too. Yeah, so, me too. Uh, me too. Yeah. I, I, I've, people on the podcast will know. If I'm not drinking a beer, I'm probably drinking either a gin martini or a gin and tonic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I drink a lot of gin and tonics too. Yeah, yeah. too Have you ever had a Pigu Club cocktail? No. Wait, Whoa. what is that? <laughs> <laughs> so damn good. Juice from one half of a lime. Okay. Mm -hmm. Two ounces of like London dry gin. Uh huh. Um, a strong half ounce of Cointreau. Dash of orange bitters. Dash of regular bitters. Mm-hmm. Shaken, served up. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> good thing it's to be so recorded. Drew has his new So drink. good. Well, no. I, and Pigu is spelled P-E-G-U no. club. Yeah. Uh, the Pigu club was the uh, British uh, was gentleman's club. Uh, it was the British gentleman's club in Rangoon, Burma. Now, the only thing I can think of is it, 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 sounds like, it sounds like somebody decided to make a more drinkable Negroni that was stronger and was more designed to just make you messy, which is oh, awesome. Man, I like it. They're fantastic. When you go to a bar and, and you're like, do you know how to make a Pigu? They're like, oh, of course, sir. And you're like, oh, thank God. They're so good. <laughs> They're so good. They're delicious. Well, I, yeah, I'm totally making those when I get back home and my wife is going to go, why are you so drunk? I'm going, because I'm experimenting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, you can obviously experiment with the gin. And, right. You know, Cointreau can be anywhere from, well, you know, half ounce to five-eighths. Well, you know. and that also sounds, I mean, like, I mean, that sounds like that would be really fascinating to go up against new American gins, right? Mm. Uh, for listeners who don't know, difference between kind of old school, the, the old Tom gins, they're sweeter, they have kind of a viscosity to them, very yeah, much yeah, like... Yeah. Almost very malty. much like yeah, but it, like a, a yeah a sweeter version almost of a, a Dutch Geneva, right? Yeah, yeah. Geneva's, yeah. which are the original gins, have a, a very sort of viscous feel to them, particularly when it's served cold, like they should be. Yep. Old Toms have a sweetness to them. Beyond that, London Dry is what everybody thinks of as gin, and nowadays you have this whole new American school of gin, which is more <laughs> citrus based, less yeah. juniper based. Yeah. And so, also I mean, delicious. Oh yeah, absolutely. But uh, to me, don't get me wrong. <laughs> to me, that actually sounds like that would even go really well with. Yeah, it's a, like uh, Sartitious is one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and by the way, uh, my favorite martini right now is probably still a uh, uh, Saint George's uh, Terroir with a little bit of Dolan's Dry mm. and olive. Very good. Very aromatic. Very stupid. <laughs> but that's not the point of this podcast. Oh, back to beer. All right. So, uh, we got to talk about a couple things because uh, normally this is where we'd ask people, like, oh, hey, what's the worst thing you've ever done or what's the best thing you've ever done? But we, uh, before we started this podcast, we went on a tour of the, the little facility that you have here. Yep. And you showed us a couple of unique features that you have in the brewery. So, let's go through this from the order that we saw these in the brewery. And let's talk a little bit about the lotter or the hop roll pulley type thing thing that you've got going that's it's a different. hotback it's a proper hotback yeah but a proper Every, hotback that's different than what people would normally think of as a hotback yeah because they're using the language wrong okay <laughs> all right let's go with it because those are hop jacks what most really? people have is a hop jack right a back i mean it's like when you go to like a distillery and they they make wash and they put it into what a wash back right because a back is like a full-size tank right right so a hop back is a 
large insulated tank that can hold all of the wort from your kettle. If you've got 20 barrels of wort in your kettle, it better be able to hold like 22, 23 barrels of wort. Um, please remember that uh, wort at boiling temperatures is 4% more volume mm -hmm. than wort at 20 degrees C. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, you guys don't like the science, guys. Um, <laughs> I know. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, you pump the whole kettle load once you're done boiling it into the hop back. And a hopback's job isn't really to add more aroma and flavor from hops. So the hopback's job is to just simply remove hops from the wort. That's what they do. <clears throat> you have to think of this pre-pelletization, pre-powder, when the only thing was was whole hops. Mm -hmm. You put hops in the kettle, now you got to get them out. How the hell are you going to get them out? Well, kettles aren't designed to remove hop material. You have to like get them out with a pump or gravity. And then you need some screening device to separate the wort from them. That's what a hop back is. It's a filtration device. Of course, we're new American brewers, so we do add hops into the hop back. But, and I mean this, if I had a way to put those hops in the kettle and a pump and everything large enough that I could just woof and move it right through, I absolutely would put everything into the kettle. Right. All right. So now let me ask you, because I'm used to thinking like with American breweries, I've got you know my HLT, my mash tun, True. my uh, boil kettle, and, and then obviously you got the European configuration where you got the uh, separate lard tun versus a mash boil kettle. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you also have some American breweries where it's like, oh look, we've got just a hop whirlpool tank. Right. Yeah. Right? Sure. Mm -hmm. So. What's a how, how do we fit what you're doing into those particular models? Is it really like the European thing where you're using? No, it's water? I mean, okay, a it's uber British, but really what it is is we're substituting uh, a hot back for what most brewers would use a whirlpool for. Okay, so we run from a mash louder ton into a kettle into the hot back. Right. Okay, most. Many modern American breweries would run from a mash louder into a kettle to a whirlpool mm -hmm. and right. then out. Um, it's, and, and what's a whirlpool? A whirlpool removes hops from, um, from uh, beer. Right. And uh, the, the uh, hop back does the same thing. So. And you were saying that you actually stir up the hops in the kettle before you transfer yeah, yeah. to make sure there's none stuck in the bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We jokingly say that we anti-whirlpool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's never going to close. Somebody kicked that in when we got robbed one time. Nice. Yeah. Don't edit that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, we've been robbed more than once. But no longer. No longer. Security measures in place. Uh, yeah, so uh, because we put a lot of hops in the kettle, if we were to just pump the liquid out of there, the hops would settle to the bottom of the, of the, uh, of the kettle and would sit there and we'd be hosed. We wouldn't have a good way to get them out. So we actually have to stick an ore into the kettle and we kind of stirred around to keep the hops up in suspension. Right. We jokingly call it the anti-whirlpool. Well, and so uh, you you have two different ore-shaped devices by your <laughs> brew deck, and you said, oh, no. No, we don't. We have an ore, which is ore-shaped, and we have a paddle, which is a paddle. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't understand what's confusing about this. <laughs> a paddle is used with, you know, you have one hand. Your, your hands are held uh, perpendicular to each other. 
uh, with a paddle, and your hands are held parallel to each other with an oar. Yeah, that's uh, different. Oh yeah. So, uh, Drew doesn't do a lot of boating in Pasadena. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I understand that. Water in Pasadena. Yeah, I understand it, but like a paddle is used, you know, like yeah. this. So your paddle and an oar is used like this. Yeah. So paddle for uh, paddle has your hand pretty much encompassed along the top. With another hand along on the, the shaft. shaft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With an oar, both, both hands, hands are on, on the, shaft. the shaft. Yeah, as it were, yes. There you Boy, go. Boy, we could go somewhere with that that yeah. I'm not going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably exactly. Fine idea, Denny. You mean like across a pond? Yeah, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I meant, Dan. Wow. All right. Yeah. So, <laughs> now, while, while we're in oddball things inside the brewery, yeah. and not on oddball things that you might put your hands on inside of a brewery, uh, let's talk a little bit the about Mixbox. Oh, Mixbot. Mixbot mixes. Um, <laughs> we just don't really... There's a whole Mixbot dance and everything. Oh, man. If only there was video. Um, Mixbot is a small device. Well, it's not that small. It's like uh, half the size of a pallet, and it's maybe four and a half feet high. Well, uh, and, and the, the body of it is, would you the say, main, 100 liter? The main body of it is a 100 liter keg that has right. been modified with some various outlets. And there's a diaphragm pump, and there's a static mixer. And what Mixbot's really for is uh, Mixbot mixes Isinglass. Um, Except for it seems like Mixbot it does more than Isinglass. Oh, no, no, Mixbot mixes. Mixbot will do anything. Mixbot's original... I'm going to say Mixbot as much as possible. Uh, go, go, that's fine. Mixbot's original uh, intent was merely to mix Isinglass and then mix that Isinglass into a tank of beer. But once we realized how we could use it, we realized, oh, my God, if you want to make a goza and you're not sure how much salt to put in well make a salt solution inside the 100 liter keg and then start using mixbot to mix salt into the into the tank and then taste the tank as you go and then shut it off and hey ba bam you want to put a few puree in mixbot you want to put in a, pff, hop oil mixbot whatever mixbot mixes mixbot doesn't give a shit. <laughs> mixbot will mix anything I think now you need to have. You remember the there was a YouTube channel. Will it blend? <laughs> you know, uh, the blend yeah, tech wow. blenders. Yeah. Huh, yeah. I, I think you need to have a mixbot. Will it mix? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Will mixbot mix it in? Mixbot in coffee, hamsters. Mm. Mixbot doesn't macerate. Okay. That would so be macerate bot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, yeah, yes. yes. <laughs> once, once macerated. <laughs> you could easily put liquefied hamsters into Mixbot and then mix it into a beer. No problem. I just want to apologize to everybody for even having that thought. <laughs> Mixbot would just simply stir the hamsters. <laughs> it would mix them. They would just float. Depends on the size of the hamster. I mean, you really could plug a valve up. <laughs> look, hey, look. I'm an animal lover. I'm going to say in a 100-liter keg, the hamster's swimming. He's just swimming around a whirlpool. Yeah, or but the problem, no, the the problem is, is because we're concerned about dissolved oxygen. Don't break it. Poor hamster would go in there and it'd be in a CO2 environment. Poor little guy. Oh, Look, dude, so. stop harshing my animal loving mellow. <laughs> I'm not the one who suggested. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I apologize again. Gerbils are okay though. Yeah. Right. All right. Um, so here we go. Uh, classic question here. So yes, we use Isinglass. <laughs> <laughs> And if, and if, you know what, can I go on a tirade for a yeah, moment? Yeah, go, go for it. Is that okay? Yeah. So if you're out there right now and you're vegan and you're horribly offended that I use Isinglass, let me just, let me just explain a few things to you. 
First of all, the isinglass that we use is uh, the swimbladders uh, primarily of Nile perch, which are mainly harvested in sub-Saharan Africa where they're an invasive species. They're harvested by people who are essentially subsistence level fishermen who can actually use the swimbladders to sell for cash, which allows them to do things like, I don't know, send their children to f school. <laughs> so I'm glad that you're f pure because God forbid anyone in the third world get educated. That really, man, that, there could be problems with that. Like on top of that, on top of that, if you're really vegan and you're really concerned about things, do you have any idea of what happens when a combine runs through a field? You kill lots of little Dies left and right. Left and right. There's no such thing as vegan grain. At all. Period. End of story. There's really no such thing as, you know, given the fact that there are vegans out there that get upset about people using diatomaceous earth to filter... Because yeah. millions of years ago, in like a different period, and there were like two extinctions ago, something was alive, and God forbid we're using it. Um, yeah, food you eat, it has died. I hate to tell you, dies. Right. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> yes, we use Isinglass. You know why we use Isinglass, Larry? Because it clears the beer. Because it works better. Well, I've always said, <laughs> no matter your your political or cultural beliefs or anything else. As long as there are options, and I think the biggest thing is as long as people are clear about what they're doing. Yeah, I don't really care if people know I'm using Isinglass. No, no, well, no, but that's the thing. Yeah. You're, you're very clear about it, and yeah. that's perfect. That's what Isinglass does, though, isn't it? Yeah. Clear. <laughs> well, yeah, see? But, but I mean, that's Two like, points for Larry. I mean, but it, <laughs> I'm going to get hate mail. This is going to rule. Well, I mean, <laughs> hate mails are always there, no matter what you do. But I think the, the biggest and most important thing, from anybody's point of view, and hopefully from reasonable people's, uh, reasonable people's point of view who have dietary restrictions, whether uh, medically mandated or self-mandated, is that as long as people are being clear with me, good. Sure. And so you're being very clear about the, hey, yeah. look, we're not vegan yeah. because we're using icing gloves. Yeah. I don't think beer can be vegan. So what's because the, of combines. What's the crazy? <laughs> what's the craziest beer-related thing you've ever done? The craziest beer-related thing I've ever done. Um, okay, so maybe this isn't as crazy, but it's just really memorable to me. Memorable's good. It was like my second week on the job at Minnesota Brewing Company, and the number two master brewer came down and said to me, hey, Van, you want to be a brewer, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, come here, I got a job for you. And the spent grain silo in a brewery with a 450-barrel kettle. So we're not talking about some small amount. Right, right. no. The, oh, auger, the auger had failed on it. I'm starting to think of the smell. Yeah, the auger had failed on it. And there was a room that must have been 40 by 40 probably at least that was probably an inch and a half deep in spent grain that had been there for probably a week and a half. <laughs> He's like, clean it up. All right, uh, guess what I did for eight hours that day. How many times did you puke during doing uh, No, never. Oh, I, yeah, yeah, good. yeah, it was pretty good. How, well, no, uh, how many times did you want to? Only when I first walked into the room. Honestly, then it wasn't so bad. The man has a... I don't know, crazy. I mean, I had a fermentation room that had a grease trap in it. Oh. <laughs> um, all, right, now, all right. Welcome to uh, City of Portland. Right. No, no, no. That was Bethesda, Maryland. Wait, 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 no, it was no. miserable. It's <laughs> awful. How many of those of us, there are four of us here in the room right now, how many of us have ever worked in a kitchen with a grease trap? 
I, have, I never have, but I worked in a brewery. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so there, half of us have the or, well, and a brewery with a goose trap. Uh, so that's well, it's a brew pub. So whatever. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's a, that you know, whatever. Sense, yeah. Three quarters of us have worked in a facility with a grease trap before, yeah. and I am just going to say right now for everybody who has done that, holy crap, the smell out of those things. Yeah, it's really bad. It is no, it's not really bad. It is something completely untoward that a person should never have to smell when you have to go clean the damn thing out. Yeah, what was so disturbing was um, I worked there long enough that I would be able to actually open, it was a manway cover, and I'd be able to mm -hmm. actually open that up and stick my head down there and look and be like, it looks fine. Yep. Close it up, and everyone else would be like, <laughs> everyone else would be like, ah, I'm going to be like, what? It doesn't, it's not that bad, guys. <laughs> They'd be like, I'm, I gotta leave, and I'd be like, yeah, well, you make me work in here every day, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's bad. All right. Um, so, man, obviously. So you I get... stuck my head in a grease trap. <laughs> That's, that? that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that definitely qualifies. All right. So, man, uh, obviously, you play yeah. around with a lot of flavors. We've had your gin barrel IPA here. I'm having your farmhouse. Uh, we've had a couple different beers from you. And also seen a lot of the things you're playing around with in the brewery. Uh, but what is uh, something that you wish that more people would uh, either explore or drink that they are oh. now? Um, God. Uh, malt in general <laughs> um I, I also wish people would um i mean I, I think that it's getting to be a little bit cliche in the last year or two but um i think people need to start looking at malt a little more just in general and, and honestly i really wish that people would um wish that people would focus on drinkability more than anything else you know what i mean well it's i mean like, that goes back to what we were talking about before yeah, yeah. like the, the ability to be able to get the glass down yeah. and go in for another yeah yeah yeah, I was just in. I was just in, like literally, last week and the week before. I was in Germany, and can, can you really drink five liters of IPA in a day? <laughs> I'm sure there are those of us out there that can, but just ain't the same as Hellas. No, no, you know, just ain't the same as Hellas. Although hilariously, I was in Slovenia at Union Brewery, which is a big brewery that just got bought by Heineken, and. Uh, they're doing some experimental stuff, and one of them was like kind of like an American IPA, and it was tasted like a nice pale ale. It was fine, but after only drinking lager for like two weeks, I was like, "Oh my god, these beers are amazing!" <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so now you mentioned earlier that you'd you'd gone this hop trip to yep. Germany and Slovenia. Yep. Since most American homebrewers aren't going to have the opportunity to experience what you experienced. Yeah. What can you tell us about what you saw, uh, both in the German hop characters and the civilian hop characters, and like how their brewers were using those things? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, there's there's still an enormous amount of interest in Germany in traditional Landrace hops. Um, and, and by that, and by that you mean the Halle Towers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Halle Tower, Tettenengspalt, right, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's an enormous amount in the sort of replacements for those uh, Holotow Select, Holotow Tradition, Opal, you know, Saphir, blah, blah, blah. But they're, they're really starting to, to do some new hops. I think everyone's heard of uh, Mandarina Bavaria mm -hmm. and Kiel Melon and, uh, and uh, Blanc, Holotow mm -hmm. Blanc. Um, but uh, there's some other stuff coming out now. Um, there's a there's a hop that we just saw called uh, Callista 
That's great. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's amazing. And uh, I think this is only like maybe the second year of commercial growth, really. There's like hardly any of it. I think there's only like three, a few farmers. Um, but which I mean, I mean, there's probably, I don't know, 10 hectares of Callista out there, something like that. Wow. It's like nothing. It's like 15 acres. Wow. Um, uh, and, uh, and those are, you know, really aimed at like the American kind of scene and whatnot. Um, Slovenia, they're trying to do everything they can to get on the map. So they've mm -hmm. got, you know, like a government breeding program. They're working on a lot of stuff and they're still, you know, pushing their old varieties, you know, like Bobek and, mm -hmm. you know, um, Styrian Golding and all that sort of stuff. But they've got new varieties coming out, Cardinal. Um, well, a few others. And I'm going to say, as somebody who's an old school Saison fan, Steering Golding's awesome. It's the Steering Hops, there, there's a lot of really nice Steering yeah. Hops out there, actually. Well, um, I always think of them as like having these really wonderful spicy characters <coughs> without like a lot of like the more negative characteristics. Oh, you should try Bobek if you can get your hands on Bobek. Yeah. Um, no, I, and I've done I've done one or two things with Bobek, but not yeah. to like really be able to go, hey! Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a hop that you just don't see very often. Yes. Um, there's not a ton of it that gets out there. But they've got, I mean, I don't know, I saw like, I don't know, five or six numbered varieties. And But numbered variety means it hasn't been approved for breeding yet, doesn't have a name. Yeah. It's all still in the it, very it's, experimental it's thing. thing yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw five or six of those in Slovenia and saw a couple in Germany too, actually. Um, so there's a lot going on. Last question? Uh, I got two more. All right, so uh, let's see. Uh, so... Any other brewing thoughts that we haven't touched on? Things that you think could apply to homebrewers that you wish homebrewers would see, uh, would mm. do, or other things that you think need to be done other than the malt thing, obviously. Oh, yeah, I think the well, you guys kind of nail it on the head with what you're doing with uh, with homebrewing, which is that your batch size is so small that you can do a lot of experimentation, and I think that's really valuable. I think that in both homebrewing and uh, I'm going to call it small commercial brewing, for lack of a better term. Um, I think there's far, far, far too much anecdotal sort of belief yeah, going way, on. This is the way it was done by my forebearers. Uh, no. Um, I made this beer, and I put a bunch of hops in the mash tun, and it was awesome. So I do it to all my beers now. That's right. You're like, did you make another beer exactly like it? <laughs> but, like, for homebrewers... That's really easy to do. The batch size is small, right. or it's really easy to split. It's actually yeah. harder for us to do. So I think that um, I think that having a critical eye towards your beer is, I think, I think that I would like to see an enormous amount more of that in the entire industry, home brewing, professional brewing, whatever. It drives me bat crazy. Well, and by the way, for the record, I wish people could see that, but. Uh your van really did turn into like a performer from Saturday Night Live right there when he was uh, channeling the home brewer. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, anyway. Whatever. So, yeah, sure, fair enough. I'm just saying. It. Embellishment. Drew's been drinking. You have too, <laughs> so whatever. All right. Uh, last question before, before we move on to other things. Uh, what non-beer thing are you obsessed by or do you... Uh, do you feel consumed by? I had a couple. Go for it. They go from the totally normal automobiles. Mm -hmm. I am absolutely an automobile obsessive. Absolutely. The Plague, 
Wait, hold on, wait, the plague? Who doesn't? Who isn't fascinated by the plague? <laughs> I'm fascinated by the plague. Is that a first, guys? Okay. It is. Yeah, that's first. Yeah. Well, okay. No, which one year my wife gave me a couple books about the plague for Christmas, and I was like, Oh my God, you love me! And then I sat down and kind of started looking through them. And she's like, There's other things to open, and I was like, Oh, sorry, and I had to put the plague books down. Wait, so that, ooh, no, I've got other things. Okay, can I go back to looking at the books? All right, the so plague? Now, which version of the plague and which theory of the plague do you subscribe? <laughs> I mean, clearly the uh, 1347 to 1349 plague is the most interesting. I mean, it really obviously. Oh, duh. <laughs> I mean, a it signifies the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the early modern period. Plus, it like basically half destroys European primogeniture. I got to say the word primogeniture. Oh, that's right, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the first on uh, the podcast. Yeah, primogeniture. Awesome. We'll bring it out a few times. Um. I only promise I paid fifty cents for that word, so I gotta yeah, use man. it. Yeah, you should. Um, uh, so, you know that plague. And by theory of the plague, do you mean was it really actually modern bubonic plague? Exactly. Yeah. So here's my belief on that one because I've read a bunch because I'm a plague obsessive, so I've read a bunch of stuff about this and how the fact of the matter is is that the one consistency in all the plagues from 1350 to 1650 or whatnot was the plague girdle. Yep. You know about the yep. plague girdle. Describe it to the. So, so the modern belief of the plague is the bubonic plague. You get the bubios in your lymph nodes. So, in your armpits, your groin, and your neck. The bubios are basically the the pustules, the the, the big. Yeah, the bubio is the big swollen black. Your your lymph node explodes, basically. Um, It's tasty. But but the plague girdle was was a painful rash across your midsection. Um, And that was the one thing. So, there are people who say that. Well, that doesn't really sound like modern plague. To which my argument is, um, people, these are bacteria. There's really nothing to indicate that they would be genetically stable over this many hundreds of years. And it also may help explain why we don't see a lot of this anymore. Right. That it's entirely probable, if not uh, possible, if not probable, that the bacterial strain and that genetic makeup of the strain that was so virulent in the uh, you know late Middle Ages, early modern period, um, has essentially changed in some way, such that the plague we know now is the descendant, essentially, of the plague that mm-hmm. was so bad. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, means I'm also obsessed with the flu. <laughs> 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 now, do you get your flu shot every year? Yeah, you damn straight I do. <laughs> you're, a, you're a fool if you don't get a flu shot, people. Yep, I agree. <laughs> Especially now that H1N1's back. This shit ain't no joke. Yeah, that's right. That's you worried right. about plague? Worried about H1N1? So especially when you get to be old like me, man. That's, yeah. That's when they really... No, are, are, H1N1 is worse for the young. Is it really? Or, or, yeah. or asthmatic like I am. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I got, yeah. yeah, I got terrible lungs to begin with. So, yeah, I'm getting my flu vaccine. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Van, any last thoughts that you want to leave the audience with before we, uh, before we bolt? Go have some more beer? Zeppelin rules. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> So uh, we're here at Gigantic Brewing. We've been talking to Van Havig. It's the only plague discussion we have ever had on the podcast. Which and is I a little bit sad. It is. It's a yeah. little bit sad. Yeah, well, I, I, I really want to thank you for that, man. Oh, you're welcome. And if no one's read Camus' The Plague, it's one of the great existential works ever. Okay. It's a phenomenal book. He is, he is not incorrect about this. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Can I, can, I, can I add something real quick? Yeah. Van actually has some some published papers and, uh, on the NBA NBA right correct yeah, one, so yeah, one, yeah. I've, I've I've seen these in, in in front of very large brews who have very intense you know quality control programs 
and Van goes in and he will give a quality control program on the most basic level, and in my opinion, one of the most important levels on certain things, mind-blowing. Uh, some, some of these things homebrewers can take away with. Uh, efficiency of their brew house, how to, mm -hmm. you know, that was to me one of the ones that even a homebrewer can take away with you. If, uh, as a listener, if you want if you want to learn more about it, it it'll be interesting to you well, how to do better job. Just Google Van and the MBA, well, and you're going to learn all about it. Maybe one of the things we can do is we can uh, we can work in Van, and we can get some sort of consolidated tips yeah. out there. Yeah, mm. maybe so. And we'll put, that, we'll put that up on the website. But, uh, Totemo Omoshiroi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting in Japanese. I know like six things in Japanese. That's one. Thanks, man. I appreciate your Thanks, time. Thanks, Danny. Always good to see you, buddy. You too, Thank man. you, sir. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Thanks, Larry. Yeah. Larry, again. <laughs> Still here. Okay, we were talking to Van Havig from Gigantic Brewing. Our friend Larry Clauser was along with us once again. And, uh, Drew, I had no idea you were such a plague fanatic. I'm an everything fanatic. I mean, remember, if I hadn't become an engineer, I was going to become a history professor. Ah, there so. you go. <laughs> Still, I mean, so so what do you think, man? A pretty interesting guy, huh? Oh, yeah, and I, and I love the sort of playful take on beer and the playful flavors that he was showing. That gin barrel IPA, yeah, that gets rightful praise. Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, that was just... That was awesome. Outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't I don't use the word awesome like that very much, but that beer was awesome. There's just no two ways about it. Yeah. Well, and I will totally tell you that if I find myself back in Portland, like I hope to before too long, uh Gigantic will always be on the top of the list of places to go. Yep. Great beers, great guy, and great food truck outside, huh? Yeah. I'm not gonna argue. <laughs> Okay, uh, here's a warning. We're going to take a break and play some ukulele music. And when we come back, it'll be time for Ask Denny and Drew. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer. beer it's time for the part of the show that we call Ask Denny and Drew, where you ask and we try to answer. Uh, we have five questions today. And Drew, you get the first one here. Oh boy. Yeah, the uh, first question comes from uh, David Beyer via email who says, Hello, gentlemen. I like the Good question, question mark. mark. Yeah. Yeah. On a recent podcast, Drew talked about how he cleaned his kegs, filled them with sanitizer, pushed the sanitizer out with CO2, and then set them aside for future use. I used to do something similar while also pushing it out through a cleaned beer draft line to sanitize that as well. That's actually a really good idea. Yeah. Uh, my buddy didn't agree with the idea of sanitizing after cleaning and then storing, but rather waiting right until right before use to sanitize. Uh, one of my friend's concerns stemmed from how plastic tubing gets all slimy when you leave it in star sand too long, and he was concerned about of even leaving residue in beer line tubing. At NHC in Baltimore, or HumbrewCon, I went up to the five-star chemical booth and asked them about this. They said they always advise to just sanitize right before use. They said the little remnants of star sand can break down and become food for bugs. I don't recall if it was for wild yeast or bacteria or both. They said I should listen to my friend, and this also seems to fit with the common talking point that you shouldn't worry about a little bit of star sand in your beer because the yeast enjoys it. 
Perhaps this isn't an issue with Iota Ford, but Drew also mentioned doing this technique with Sani Clean, or maybe it's okay for kegs, but not beer line tubing. I'd like to hear your thoughts, and perhaps you could delve into it further with Five Star. Well, yeah, know what? I did. So I reached out to uh, Five Star, uh, thanks to John Palmer, and talked to John Hertzkowitz from uh, Five Star. And I asked him this exact question, and he basically said, oh, no, no, your method is the recommended method for kegs. Uh, he says, I understand the misunderstanding that star sand or sandy clean could break down over time and provide uh, critter fuel. Uh, he didn't actually start using the word critter. I did. Uh, this assumes that there are critters in the keg. If you have cleaned and sanitized properly, then pressurized with CO2, there are no critters and there won't be critters until you introduce them. You have sanitized a keg and then emptied the keg with CO2. This will be stable and not allow something to magically grow inside. And when I kind of pushed him a little bit further to make sure I understood, because we have talked about uh, star sand before it becoming sort of yeast nutrient and bug fuel. What John said was when the pH solutions rise above 3.5, the solutions deactivated. And that's when it actually becomes a problem, uh, particularly when it's between uh, 4.5 to 6. Uh, that's when yeast are most active and they'll feed off micronutrients and they'll actually pick up stuff out of the star sand solution, uh, basically the phosphate. Uh, and if you put wort on top of a fermenter that has it, then yeah, that's when it will, that's when it will take those up. But here, the CO2 is not only, not only is the keg sanitized, so there are no critters inside of it, but the CO2 actually will help keep the solution, uh, the pH solution down into the right range. So you don't really have to worry about it. Now that's different than the plastic beer line tubing because that's a chemical reaction. Uh, and any sort of, and plus, let's also face it, you're never going to completely sanitize plastic, at least not beer line tubing. Uh, so you're always going to have something in there. And so, yeah, in that particular case, I wouldn't store beer line with sanitizer on it. But in the kegs, I've, uh, we have the thumbs up from the folks at Five Star that you don't have to worry about it in this particular usage scenario. And this is actually the way they prefer for people to store the kegs. Wow, that is really great info. And it sure is good to get like something firsthand like that, you know? Yeah, isn't it? So, and by the way, that uh, goes back to the point. This is the reason why we like to have your questions ahead of time, because if we can get your questions ahead of time, then I can do things like that. Yeah, right. So, uh, All right. send those questions in. Yeah. All right. So now, uh, next question goes to you, Denny. This one comes from Jeff May of Clayton, North Carolina via email. Jeff says, I often hear the statement that dry yeast packets typically contain 200 billion cells. I have seen this in many books and articles. However, the published analysis for many of the common dry yeasts available to home brewers contradict this information. The Dan Star Lalleman site specifies living yeast cells greater than 5 times 10 to the 9th per gram of dry yeast on all of their brewing yeasts except for their diamond lager, which is listed as 7 times 10 to the 9th per gram of dry yeast, so even more in there. Each small packet has 11 grams, which would be 55 billion cells per packet of ale yeast, or 77 billion cells for lager yeast. The Fermenta site indicates viable cells at packaging greater than 6 times 10 to the 9th per gram for all their ale and lager yeast. Each packet is 11.5 grams, which yields 69 billion cells per packet. What am I missing? Well, Jeff, I don't think you're missing anything uh, other than maybe a lot of the uh, 
a lot of the references that you read that quote 200 billion cells are just wrong. I would certainly believe what the companies who manufacture and test these yeasts tell you. So base all your yeast use estimates on those figures and not 200 billion that you read from goofballs like us out on the internet. Yeah, I was going to say homebrew authors and brewers are liars. Well, I don't know if they're liars, but uh, what we've seen oftentimes is uh, something gets repeated so often it becomes common knowledge. And then once it becomes common knowledge, people assume that it's correct. And when the the legend becomes fact, print the legend. That's right. Yeah. Um, And sometimes that stuff will be correct and sometimes it won't be. So that's one reason we do things like go to the manufacturers like Drew did with Starsan. That's why you went to the manufacturers of the yeast here, Jeff, because you wanted to get the straight facts. So I would say you're not missing anything. If anything, you're doing a great service to other homebrewers because you are now disseminating correct information. So thanks for the question. Thanks for the info. And uh, keep, keep doing it. All right, and our next question comes from Jake Freshour of Gresham, Oregon. Uh, via email, he says, Hey, Drew, I recently picked up a 10-gallon corny keg at F.H. Steinbart. Hey! Uh, for closed fermentation and subsequent transfers, especially with hoppy beers where the flavor slash aroma drops off quickly with the slightest bit of oxygen intrusion. I feel like we just talked about that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, my question is, do you modify your dip tube for your fermentation kegs? I've heard of folks cutting them shorter, putting a stainless steel filter on the end, using a floating pickup tube, etc., Curious to get your feedback on what's worked best for you. Thanks. Uh, yeah, so Jake, uh, I take the simple route, which is I cut my dip tubes just slightly shorter. So I actually will take, and I buy spares for this exact reason, because I'd still like to be able to have a full-length dip tube. Not that I'm ever going to use the kegs as serving kegs, but for some reason my brain feels like I have to have the full-size dip tube. But I've just taken in the past... A regular dip tube, and I usually will knock about a half inch off and just use a tubing cutter, do that, clean it up, make sure everything's nice and clean, and then uh, put that into the keg, and I'll use the keg that way. Uh, I do know people who have used uh, stainless steel filters. I've never seen the floating pickup tubes actually used for fermentation. I usually see them as sort of a variant of cast service type thing, Uh, Mm -hmm. so I can't speak to that, but I've seen people use the stainless steel filters. I've used those before when I've dry hopped in my fermenters like that. Uh, but I'm always a little worried. One, that's an awful lot of surface area to have to sanitize. And two, it's also a thing to clog. And the last thing in the world I want to do is have my fermenter clog and me not be able to get anything out. At the very least, if I get out some yeasty beer or some hoppy stuff, I can settle that out and I can do something to get rid of it. But my nightmare would be to have the filter on the end of the dip tube and have it get clogged and then have to sit there and go, okay, now how do I get my beer out? Well, you siphon, of so, course. Well, yeah, you do, but still, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, un- unplanned, uh, oh crap emergencies always seem to lead to panic Yeah, and I'd rather avoid panic as much as possible. Well, you just need to learn to avoid panic because it's only beer, you know, uh, but no, I have to, I have to say that I agree with you about cutting the dip tube. When I first started fermenting in a 10 gallon keg, uh, I didn't want to cut it, uh, just for the reason that my God, I might need a full length dip tube on there someday. Although I couldn't exactly think of a situation where that would be true. I eventually I <laughs> cut, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, huh, I wonder why I would need that. But I eventually cut an inch off of my dip tube 
after a friend turned me on to a trick that he knows that he came up with, which is if you need a longer dip tube, you just slide a little piece of tubing over the dip tube to extend it. It's like, well, duh. So, uh, there you go. Uh, easier than keeping spare dip tubes around and less expensive, too. Well, yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> still, there's something uh, nice about having the full-size dip tube. Uh, I admit yeah, I'm weird. Uh, if you think I'm going to touch your dip tube, you're crazy. Nobody wants to touch my dip tube. Yeah, I don't blame them. Our uh, no. next question comes from Bill Sorowski via email. Bill says, I have a quick question, and I'm only asking because I really have not heard of anyone doing this, but I have a feeling many are. I just want to be sure. Ah, there's safety in numbers, huh, Bill? In trying to shorten my brew day up a bit, I was wondering why I couldn't aerate my wort while it was still in the brew kettle, chilling with the immersion chiller. I use pure oxygen, and I understand that I should wait until the wort drops below 80 degrees Fahrenheit, according to something I recently read in BYO. I do not exactly have the beefiest chiller out there at this present time, so rather than add a step of aerating the wort after it's in the fermenter, why not combine two steps and do it while still in the kettle? Thank you, and keep up the great work. Cheers. Well, cheers back at you, Bill. And... I'm on your side, buddy. I don't see any reason you can't do that. Um, there has been a lot of debunking. Uh, I hate to say actual debunking, but there there's a lot less concern about hot side aeration than there used to be. Introducing your introducing oxygen into your beer while it's still hot. Um, I, in spite of all that, I'm still of the school that's paranoid and feels like uh, it's easy to avoid that situation. So why not do it just in case? Uh, when what Bill is talking about here, when he mentions the BYO article is the uh, commonly cited number of around uh, mid eighties Fahrenheit being the uh, limit below which you're pretty much safe from hot side aeration. So by aerating his word in the kettle at 80 degrees, I, I don't see any problem at all at all. It's possible that maybe you could do it at a higher temperature, but why take that chance? Uh, you know, you may be okay. You may find out that you have just proven that hot side aeration does exist to your beer's detriment. So at any rate, bottom line is, yeah, man, if you're going to wait for it to get down to 80 and then aerate in the kettle, go for it. If it works for you, not a problem. Yeah. See, I have one problem with that. Yeah. And that's mostly, unless you're being super gentle with your transfer, I, I would worry that you're going to lose a fair amount of your oxygen when you rack into your kegs or sorry, when you rack into your fermenters. So yeah, you spend all this time and money to inject oxygen into the wort while it's in the kettle and then rack over to your fermenters and it comes out of solution. Yeah. Going into the air and being sort of semi useless then. I mean, so it, that, it, that would be my worry. It could, uh, although, you know, or, if, if when you, not my worry, it, it would be my, it would be my, point that i think you're not really actually saving yourself anything by doing it that way and uh, and that might that might very well be the case uh but 
on the other hand, I guess I was just addressing the part that I don't think you're going to hurt anything by doing it in the kettle at 80 degrees. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, if, if you're racking carefully and like running tubing down to the bottom of your fermenter, then you're going to be fine. Uh, if you're pouring the wort from your mm. kettle into the fermenter, then yeah, you're or <laughs> the other way around. If you're pouring the wort from the kettle into the fermenter, then obviously, yeah, you're going to knock a lot of that uh, that oxygen out of solution and maybe lose some of the effectiveness. So, uh, like so, that I sounds said, like I you're going to hurt anything, but you may kind of be at cross purposes with what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, so uh, sounds like we need a DO meter to do some experiments. <laughs> but hey, by the way, you you totally missed out on his postscript. He says. Uh, P.S. With my Thanksgiving meal, I will be drinking a robust cream ale fermented with white yeast 20, uh, 2112 California lager yeast. First time trying it and pleased with it. And either an experimental black pepper porter or an imperial stout for dessert. Nice. Then, black pepper cream porter. Ale. Oh, well, cream ale. And I, I, would think, uh, I would think for dessert, it's imperial stout for me. Unless yeah, you have a really uh, rich dessert, yeah. in which case the black pepper works. <laughs> yeah, black pepper porter could be really good. That kind of sounds interesting. Uh, okay, last question is for you from Brad Carlson. All right, so uh, Brad Carlson uh, writes in and he says, I brew with RO water now, but before when I was using tap water, I was battling phenolic flavors in my pale beers. The beers tasted like pool water. Even after charcoal filtration and Camden tablets, I still had the problem. I finally gave up and went to RO, no issue since. But I did not give up on researching a cause. Finally, I had a thought. Maybe it's the garden hose. I'm stupid, and this thought never occurred to me before. Well, no, you're not stupid. A lot of people don't have that thought occur to them. Uh, after reading a number of forums, people seem to be split on the practice of using a garden hose. Do you think the garden hose flavor could make it into the final beer? And just to establish the ground rules here, I'm going to assume when you say garden hose, you mean... Yield classical green rubber hose with the black uh, black interior, green coating on the outside. And do I think it could make it into the final beer? Yes. Oh, sweet baby Jesus, yes. I have tasted a number of beers. So one of the things I do for my club is I do our Troubleshooters Corner, uh, where people bring beers that they want feedback on that are flawed or that they just really want uh, some reassurance on or direction on. And they'll bring them to me. And the number of beers I've had from relatively new brewers who all have uh, a very distinctive phenolic flavor that is exactly garden hose uh, and have said, oh, yeah, no, I use the garden hose in my backyard to fill my kettle or whatever is legion. So do I think it can make it into the beer? Absolutely. Does it taste phenolic? Yes. Uh, and once you start to recognize it, it's a very distinctive flavor, which is the reason why I always recommend that if you're going to use any sort of hose for filling your, your kettles or for rinsing or anything else where it's going to possibly have water that ends up in the beer, either use vinyl tubing, like what you'd find, you know, for racking and whatnot, and just make a garden hose adapter for it, or buy yourself an RV potable water hose, the white hose, uh, and use those. I have two of those in my garage along with other tubing that I use. So totally, absolutely, garden hose is a thing. Uh, and boy, do I not like it. <laughs> yeah, well, if you think about it, I mean, you know, uh, chlorophenols are often related to band-aids, which are plastic and, you know, and, uh, and rubbery. And that's the same thing that a typical garden hose has. I have to admit that 
back many, many years ago when I used a garden hose, I don't remember any off flavors from it, but I didn't use it for very long before I switched to the white RV hoses uh, as a safety precaution. So uh, that's definitely what I would recommend also, man. Just uh, skip that hose completely. Go get yourself one of the white ones. So uh, it's time for the quick tip today, and it's my turn for the quick tip. And uh, the quick tip is, is really quick and it's easy. Uh, a lot of people have, for a number of years, used the good old iodine test to test for starch conversion in their mash. I have never been a fan of it. I have found that uh, it's really easy to get a false reading. And no matter what reading you get, it really doesn't tell you a lot about the state of your mash. Uh, Kai Troister, uh, who used to be extremely active on the brewing scene, uh, is not anymore, but he has left behind a wonderful website called Braukaiser. We'll put up a link to that, but it's B-R-A-U-K-A-I-S-E-R. And one of the things that Kai looked at was conversion efficiency, meaning how much of the starch in your grain did you actually convert to sugar? He came up with a way to calculate the maximum amount of sugar you can reach for any kind of water to grist ratio, no matter how much grain that you use. There's a certain maximum amount of sugar that can be extracted for any given water volume. So he put together this great chart. And what you do is you take a gravity reading of your first runnings and compare that to what he lists as the maximum gravity for the mash ratio you're using. You should always be darn close to 100% in your conversion efficiency. And there are people who always say, wait a minute, you can't get 100% efficiency. I'm talking conversion efficiency here. This is different than uh, mash efficiency or brew house efficiency. I suggest you all check out this link we're going to post to Kai's conversion efficiency sheet and uh, take uh, take a reading of your first runnings of your mash runoff and compare it to what he lists for the maximum gravity and figure out uh, how, what your conversion efficiency is. It can really help you if you're having efficiency issues because, again, your conversion efficiency should be up near 100% so that anything that reduces the efficiency after that comes from your, your mashing or loudering process. Did that make any sense? It did. <laughs> it's just how, man, how much sugar can you get into things? Yeah, that's it. That's it. So, uh, Okay, so after that briefly intense little rant, I guess it's time for something other than beer, huh? Yeah, and we're going to go back into the podcast world uh, because, yeah, and I totally forgot to talk about this last episode because things, but one of our listeners wrote in and pointed out that the GE Podcast Theater and Panoply Network have launched a new series called Life After. Now, you may remember these people from last year when the podcast was first starting. This is one of the first something other than beers that we talked about. GE came back into the into the world of radio theater with a new series that they did. It was a science fiction series called The Message. And the exact same set of creators and everybody else have gotten back together and have created this new show called Life After, which is effectively a whole brand new story about a low-level FBI agent who spends his time listening to his wife's 
social media uh, postings after she's passed away and how one day her voice comes alive. And what does it mean? <laughs> so it's, it's really cool. It's actually much more, uh, it's much more of a narrative than the message was uh, more emotional impact. Uh, you're more inside of actual characters heads as opposed to being like, you know, somebody listening to a podcast that somebody's made. Uh, so it's more of an actual radio drama. And it's so far, it's really good. And it's some of the stuff has been really intense in it. I think they're on episode three right now. New episodes come out every Saturday. Uh, so totally get yourself over there and listen to life after it's been a blast so far. And I've been enjoying it. And the other one is from uh, Gimlet Media Network, uh, who've done a lot of really interesting shows in the past. They have a new podcast series called Crime Town, where in theory, every season is going to focus on a different town. And so this season, the first season of the show, they're focusing on the good old fashioned number three city in the American mob scene, Providence, Rhode Island, and the rise of Vincent Buddy Cianci and how the mob ran Providence for years and years and years. And so really wow. kind of cool They're Yeah, they're about three episodes in on that one as well. And it's a lot of like actual investigative journalism and pulling back biographical quotes and uh, actual interviews with Buddy Cianci before he'd passed away with his autobiographer. And so you're getting a lot of details about how the mob ran Providence and how a guy like Cianci, who started off as like a an anti-mob prosecutor for the state of Rhode Island, became one of the most beloved and horrifically crooked crime uh, criminals in Providence history. <laughs> so if real life isn't scary enough for you already. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, th that's the reason why if you ever see anything about New England and the mob, you'll always will hear references to Providence because Providence was the home of the New England mob. <laughs> you know, man, I got to tell you that this is just something that is not up my alley at all, but I know that there are a lot of people they are. So uh, check it out. If, if crime is your thing, then uh, it sounds like this is for you. Yeah, it, it is a really good series, but I, I can't wait to see where they go with it. Cool. So that's our something the other beer. And you know what? I suspect we're done. That's it. Really, that wraps up another uh, episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast. Thanks a lot for joining us. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook. Uh, Drew and I hang out on tons of the brewing discussion forums out there. Uh, Drew specifically on Reddit. And uh, you can just find us hanging around on most social media these days. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to talk to each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So we'll see you on the next episode, and remember until then to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky, and we'll see you next time on Experimental Brew. Experimental Brew.